Praise the Lord, we'll be continuing forward in the book of Acts today, chapter 3, looking at Peter's second sermon, uh, the first part of looking at that sermon. Let's stand together for the reading of God's Word. I'll read from verse 1 of chapter 3 through to verse 4 of chapter 4. Please listen carefully because this is God's holy and infallible Word. Now Peter and John went up together to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a certain man, lame from his mother's womb, was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, to ask alms from those who entered the temple. Who, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, asked for alms. And fixing his eyes on him with John, Peter said, Look at us. So he gave them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. Then Peter said, Silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and lifted him up, and immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. So he, leaping up, stood and walked and entered the temple with them, walking, leaping, and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. Then they knew that it was he who sat begging alms at the beautiful gate of the temple. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Now, as the lame man who was heal healed held on to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them in the porch, which is called Solomon's, greatly amazed. So, when Peter saw it, he responded to the people. Men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Or why look so intently at us as though by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. But you denied the Holy One and the just and asked for a murderer to be granted to you and killed the Prince of Life whom God raised from the dead of which we are witnesses. And His name, through faith in His name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. Yes, the faith which comes through Him has given Him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. Yet now, brethren, I know that you did it in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But those things which God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets that the Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus Christ, who was preached to you before, whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. For Moses truly said to the fathers, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear in all things, whatever he says to you. And it shall be that every soul who will not hear that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. Yes, and all the prophets from Samuel and those who follow 
as many as have spoken have also foretold these days. So you are sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. To you first, God, having raised up his servant Jesus, sent him to bless you in turning away every one of you from your iniquities. Now as they spoke to the people, the priests, the captains of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them, being greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. However, many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. And thus ends the reading of God's word. Amen, amen. Please be seated. So Peter is going to take advantage of this great miracle that has been done. And he's going to deliver a second message to the men of Israel. And we're going to see that they are converted. That new souls are brought into the church. We're going to take a look at what Peter preaches in two parts. Uh, Today, as you can see there in your sermon notes, we'll look at how Peter capitalizes on this situation that results from this healing and how he takes the attention off of himself and points the people to God, referencing why God has done this to glorify his servant Jesus, which then opens the door for him to preach about Christ. And in that context, he charges the people, once again, convicting them of Christ's death like he did in the first sermon. And he goes on to proclaim the resurrection of Christ from the dead again like he did in the first sermon. And he finally answers their question, telling them exactly what God did to heal the lame man, that he healed him through faith in Jesus Christ. And then he calls the people to repentance and he brings in these ideas that we'll consider of conversion, and having our sins blotted out. Now, in the second part of his sermon, which we're not going to look at today, he goes further into the fruits of repentance, talking about times of refreshing and times of restoration. And this is a difficult text, and we'll get to that next week. Uh, But it's an exciting and encouraging text to see what Peter is saying to them. He speaks to them of the prophet like Moses, and he, he references Samuel and Abraham. And in fact, he says, Every single prophet who's ever spoken since the beginning of the world has foretold this about Jesus. And he encourages them at the end, calling them sons of the covenant. So we see this whole sermon is to the men of Israel. It's to the Jews. And he's giving this message to the Jews. Of course, we Gentiles can benefit from this message as well. So first, verses 11 and 12 show us Peter capitalizing on this situation. As the lame man who was healed held on to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them in the porch, which is called Solomon's, greatly amazed. So when Peter saw it, he responded to the people. So this lame man has been made whole. He's been fully healed by the Lord. 
He's got new strength. Everyone knew him. He'd been sitting there at this gate regularly, probably other gates. He's over 40 years old, we know. And with new strength, he goes walking and leaping joyfully into the temple with Peter and John, rejoicing, praising God. Over 40 years of lameness and a life of begging ended instantaneously. He's changed. Everything's different for this man. And he is very happy. His great gladness and his gratitude overflow. <clears throat> and he takes hold of Peter and John. <clears throat> Who knows what he was thinking? But he grabs onto them, gripping them as he rejoices aloud going into the temple with them. This is the scene. He held on to them. This idea is to get possession of, to take hold of something, to seize it, to hold on fast, to keep something faithfully and carefully, to restrain even. So this man does not want to let go of Peter and John. He, it's as if, if he could make a decision right then, he would just be with them forever, right? Have you ever seen uh, those movies where one person will uh, save another person's life or heard those stories? And then the person whose life has been saved says, I'm yours. And they just say, I'm going to stay with you for the rest of my life and take care of you and watch after you. Or perhaps sometimes, until I can repay the debt and save your life, I will be with you. It's almost like that is what is going on, it seems like, for this very happy man. Now what happens is that all, all the people ran together. Not just some of the people, they weren't walking. The healing has taken hold of their curiosity. And they're greatly amazed. So can you see the scene there in the temple? All the people are going to see what's going on. And they're running. They're not walking. Where are they? They're in the porch, which is called Solomon's or Solomon's portico. It's a portion of the temple. Um, a, col a colonnade. I had to look this word up. I'll admit that to you. A colonnade is um, a covered area that has columns that, up, that hold up the roof. So that's, that's Solomon's portico. Okay? And Solomon's portico has two columns. And so you're in there, and it's kind of like a hallway, if you will. The columns make that. So it's a colonnade on the east side of the temple where the early church gathered. So we see Jesus was there in John 10 at the Feast of Dedication. And then we see them here now in Acts 3. And they'll be there again in Acts 5. So it's on the east side of the temple. Now there's another portico on the other side of the temple too that has four columns. Now this portico ran along the eastern wall of Herod's temple there in the court of the Gentiles. So the portico, if you will, is covered, but it's, it's, it connects to, it's continuous with the court of the Gentiles. It had two rows of columns, while the colonnade on the south side, the royal portico, had four rows. That's from Josephus. The portico was the scene of Christ's teaching at the Feast of Dedication. And Peter gave a sermon there after his healing of the lame man. That's where we are today. The early church gathered and the apostles performed miracles there. We'll see that when we get to Acts chapter 5. So this is Solomon's portico, Solomon's porch. That's where they are. Verse 12 says, when Peter saw it, he responded to the people. So Peter and John, they've gone there. They've served this man. They could have kept walking, right? They were going to the hour of prayer. They stopped and they served this man. And their service has really helped this man. We can agree on this. 
and he's very happy about it, and all the people notice it, and they're curious. They want to know what's going on. How did this happen? Why did this happen? And Peter uses this opportunity. See, service leads to opportunity to share the gospel. And so Peter seizes this. The Lord grants Peter understanding and courage. So the man is seizing on to Peter and John, and Peter's seizing on to this moment. He's holding on to this moment. He's not going to let it pass. He sees the great curiosity of the people, and he begins preaching right into this desire, right? So when people are curious about things, it's an opportunity to preach the gospel. And every message leads back to Christ. That's the beauty of the reality of the world in which we live. Every message leads back to Christ. No matter what somebody's question is for you, especially when it comes to things like this, healing of the body, sickness, suffering, it all leads back to Christ. Peter knows this. So he preaches right into this desire. They have a pressing question, really two questions. How did this happen? Why did this happen? And he embraces this moment, first answering the questions and then going on to preach Christ to them. Matthew Henry says, when he saw the people got together in a crowd, he took that opportunity to preach Christ to them, especially the temple being the place of their concourse and Solomon's porch there. And I like what Henry says here. Let them come and hear a more excellent wisdom than Solomon's, for behold, a greater than Solomon is here preached. So what does Peter do first? He points the people to God. He points them to God. Men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Or why look so intently at us as though by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus. Men of Israel, take note of this. This is a message to the Jews who were present that day. That's who he was preaching to. It's not first to us. It's not first to the men of Samaria. This message is first to the men of Israel who were there on that day. It was first for the Jews. And this will be an important point as we get to looking into a little bit more difficult passage next week. Okay? Matthew Henry says, He addresses himself to them as men of Israel. Men to whom pertain not only the law and the promises, but the gospel and the performances, and who were nearly interested in the present dispensation. So the message is to the Jews first. They were supposed to start in Jerusalem, and here are men of Israel present. You know, it still appears to be fairly close to the time of Pentecost, and so there's probably still a lot of people who are present. So he questions the Jewish people. He's got a couple of questions for them. Why do you marvel at this? Why do you marvel at this? It's really good for preachers to put questions into the minds of the people to whom they're preaching. It's really good. Why do you marvel at this? You see, if they had understanding, they would not be so amazed, but would rather have expected such a healing. If they knew what had just happened... uh, resurrection from the dead they wouldn't be so much marveling and this hints at Peter's content to come if they had known their scriptures they would have expected signs and wonders to accompany the Messiah's kingdom if they had known Samuel and Moses and Abraham and all the prophets 
better, they would not have been so marveling. Peter's second question shows the people's tendency to idolize men instead of worshiping and praising God. We as human beings, we have a tendency to put our leaders up on a pedestal and see them as more than human. And then when they fail to treat them as less than human. That's what we tend to do as human beings. And so Peter has to correct this. Why look so intently at us as though by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? Peter's making it clear. I don't have divine power. I don't have divine godliness. Matthew Henry says, Note, the instruments of God's favor to us, though they must be respected, must not be idolized. We must take heed of reckoning that to be done by the instrument which God is the author of. It was the praise of Peter and John that they would not take the honor of this miracle to themselves, but carefully transmitted it to Christ. Useful men must see to it they be very humble. Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but to thy name give glory. Every crown must be cast at the feet of Christ. Not I, but the grace of God with me. So we see Peter and John demonstrating this to the people very quickly. This is not a movement about Peter. This is not a movement about John. Peter didn't go to try to make himself Pontifus Maximus there at that moment. He pointed to Christ. He pointed to God. Peter tells them plainly that Yahweh has done this miracle in their midst. Who's Yahweh? He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who shared his name with his people. The same God who called and blessed the patriarchs has moved here at this moment at the temple to heal this lame man, the God of creation. And God has done this for the purpose, we are told, of glorifying Jesus Christ. That's why it was done, and he has told them who did it as well. Jesus is God's servant. So he adores, he exalts Christ. He lifts up Christ, the one who had lately been crucified as a repugnant criminal. He's God's servant. And the one true God, Yahweh, is glorifying Jesus. This man has been made whole by God in order to glorify Jesus. John Gill says, these titles and epithets of God which are used in the Old Testament and the apostle chooses to retain here partly to distinguish him from the gods of the Gentiles and partly to show his regard to the God of Israel, the one only true and living God. And that though he and his fellow apostles were preachers of Christ, yet they were not setters forth of another or a strange God but believed in the same God their forefathers did, and to whom they ascribed the glory of this miracle. The God of our fathers has glorified his son Jesus by raising him from the dead, setting him at his own right hand, and giving him the gifts of the Spirit for men, which he having bestowed on the apostles, by virtue of this they wrought this miracle, which was a means of setting forth the glory of Christ and of putting men upon glorifying Christ or ascribing honor and glory to him. So Peter and John point to the great glory of the one true God. They draw the memory of these 
Jewish people to the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of their fathers, and all the great works and wonders of God that they all looked to. This same God who parted the Red Sea, the God who called Abraham out of Ur, the God who gave the ladder up to heaven for Jacob, that same God, this is the one I'm telling you about. He has done this. So he not only tells them who has done the miracle, God the Father, but Peter also tells them why God did the miracle, to glorify his servant, Jesus. See, this is the hinge moment in Peter's message. He now turns to preach Christ to these curious men of Israel. So their curiosity about the man who couldn't walk, who'd been begging alms for however many decades there, how did this happen? Who did this? Why did it happen? He's answered their question. But in answering it, he's presented Christ and his glory as the answer. And he goes on to tell them some more things about Jesus and some more things about themselves. He charges the people next. Next, he charges the people with Christ's death. Having brought up the name of Christ, the glory of Christ, he charges them with Christ's death. Whom you delivered up, see, not even a breath. Like there's a comma there, and I did some preaching since the last part, but this is essentially, it looks like in one breath. So in order to get get that point to you, he says, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant, Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. But you denied the Holy One and the just and asked for a murderer to be granted to you and killed the prince of life. So immediately after exalting Christ as God's glorified servant, Peter charges the men of Israel with Christ's death, whom you delivered up. Calvin says, He mingles with doctrine, a most sharp chiding, according as the matter did require. For it was impossible to bring them truly unto God unless they were first brought to the knowledge of their sins. Neither doth he only lightly touch them, but he doth very gravely show them the horribleness of that offense which they had committed. Let's note the ways, the listed ways that they delivered him up He could have stopped there. Peter could have stopped there, but he didn't. He goes on to give the details of how they had sinned. They denied Christ in the presence of Pilate when Pilate, a Roman, a Gentile, a pagan, was determined to let Jesus go. They denied the Holy One and the just through their unholy and their unjust denials, crucify him, crucify him. They asked for a murderer to be granted to them instead of Christ. These are things he's listing out that they were a part of. And finally he said, killed the prince of life. He tells them, you killed the prince of life. This word prince also has to do with originator or author. You killed the source of life. Matthew Henry says, in speaking to these claims, you were worse than Pilate, for he would have released him if you had let him follow his own judgment. So he's taking their sin and putting it clearly before their eyes for them to look at. Next, Henry says, observe the antithesis. You preserved a murderer 
a destroyer of life and destroyed the Savior, the author of life. You killed him who was sent to be to you the prince of life and so not only forsook but rebelled against your own mercies. You did an ungrateful thing in taking away his life that would have been your life. You did a foolish thing to think you could conquer the prince of life who has life in himself and would soon resume the life he resigned. You know, I'll say at this point that there's this idea that if we want to lead to people to repentance, we shouldn't be rough. We shouldn't be rough. I think we can agree that Peter's pretty rough right here when he tells the people, the men of Israel, about their sin. And he goes back and he recounts the specifics of what they had done wrong when they had participated in killing the Lord Jesus Christ. Now we will see that Peter also softens things where he can as he's preaching. All right, going on next. In the same breath, Peter goes on and says, whom God raised from the dead, of which we are witnesses. So it's spoken so quickly on the tail end of recounting what they had done, it's almost as if he's, Peter's saying, but it didn't matter because he came back from the dead. You did all these things, but he's still living. Whom God raised from the dead, of which we are witnesses. See, Peter emphasizes the futility of the betrayal of their Messiah. Their desire to see him dead was futile. God not only healed this lame man before their very eyes, they're witnesses to this, this leaping man that they're all looking at at that moment with their own eyes, watching him, praise God, and hold on to Peter and John. God only, not only healed this man fully, but God also recently raised up Jesus Christ from the dead, of which Peter and John are eyewitnesses. You, you can't, you shouldn't, you must not miss the parallel here. Okay? This man's healing is being held out before them as an example of what is coming for all who are in Christ. For Christ's resurrection will lead to our resurrection. Christ's victory over death will lead to our victory over death. Matthew Henry says, You thought the prince of life might be deprived of his life as any other prince might be deprived of his dignity and dominion. But you found yourselves mistaken, for God raised him from the dead, so that in putting him to death you fought against God and were baffled. God raised him from the dead and thereby ratified his demands and confirmed his doctrine and rolled away all the reproach of his sufferings and for the truth of his resurrection. We are all witnesses. So Peter and John, and I guess probably there were some other apostles and disciples there by then, we, we saw, just as surely as you see this man healed before your eyes and you're marveling about it, we saw God, the same God, raise Jesus, his servant, from the dead. Note, brothers and sisters, that when we preach Christ, we must speak of his character and his life. He is the Holy One and just. He is righteous and without sin. Perfection is the only way to describe his character. He was always fulfilling holiness. We must speak of his death upon the cross. He died. He, they, Peter talks about them delivering Christ up and him being killed. We must speak of Christ being killed upon the cross, being dead. He didn't swoon. 
He wasn't resuscitated. He was resurrected from the dead. And we must speak of him being dead, put to death on the cross, even speak of the historical aspect of it, a Roman cross, a real Roman governor named Pilate oversaw this. There were centurions present. We tell the story of what was done to him. And we talk about how God put our sins on Christ. All who will trust in Him, their sins have been placed on Him. And all of God's wrath was placed upon Christ for His people. And we must speak of the fact that after He died on the cross, He didn't stay dead. We must speak of Him being raised up from the dead. And it, it's, isn't it astonishing that it requires the work of the Holy Spirit for people to be impressed with that message. That's the kind of thing that you would think any natural person who doesn't want to die would be drawn to. Any natural person who wants to be forgiven and not held accountable for their failures would... But no. We, we have to have the Holy Spirit to even care about our sin, to even care about judgment, to even care about eternal life. So we must speak of Christ, His character, His death upon the cross, His witnessed resurrection from the dead. And then we must charge men with sin. And if you can be specific, be specific. Humbly, lowly, as a friend, lovingly, acknowledging your own sins as well. And then call them to repent. This is these are the steps that we see Peter going through today when he has an opportunity to preach Christ. Every act of healing, this is another thing to note, I said it already, every act of healing in this life is an opportunity to preach Christ. And associated with this is every sickness, <clears throat> every moment of weakness, and every promised healing, every promised comfort is an opportunity to remember Christ, remember what He has done for us, and to speak aloud of His glory, and to tell the story over and over again of who He is. So Peter then goes from this declaration of the resurrection to telling the people how the lame man was healed. So he circles back now <clears throat> to give them a fuller answer to their question after he's preached Christ to them. Peter says, and his name, but of course, he had to have the people focused on Christ, who he is, what he had done, his resurrection from the dead, in order to say this. And his name, through faith in his name, speaking of Christ, has made this man strong, whom you, strong, whom you see and know. Yes, the faith which comes through him, so see, Jesus gives faith, right? The faith which comes through him has given him this Perfect soundness in the presence of you all. Perfect soundness in the presence of you all. So you want to know what's going on here? God has done this healing. God is glorifying His servant Jesus. That's who did it. That's why it was done. Now this is how it was done. You see this? He's telling them who did it, why it was done, and now how it was done. How was it done? Through faith. This man was given faith in the Lord Jesus Christ 
And God worked in and through this man's faith to heal him. That's how it happened. Just another way that Christ is being glorified through this man's healing. God healed this lame man and he did it through this man's faith in Christ. See, this, this healing is not, we should not think of this healing as being disconnected from this lame man's faith. Now, are there times where God heals people who don't have faith? Yes. Yes. But in this situation, we are told that God heals this man in and through his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew Henry says, By this true and just account of the miracle, Peter both confirmed the great gospel truth they were to preach to the world, that Jesus Christ is the fountain of all power and grace, and the great healer and Savior, and recommended the great gospel duty of faith in him as the only way of receiving benefit by him. Let me stop there. Do you see that? He's going to call them to repentance in a minute. minute, And to be converted, which is to turn back to God, to go back to God and have their sins blotted out. And he has given them an example of of what what this path is right here. The example is faith in Christ. Back to Henry. It explains likewise the great gospel mystery of our salvation by Christ. It is his name that justifies us. That glorious name of his. The Lord our righteousness. But we in particular are justified by that name through faith in it. Applying it to ourselves. Thus does Peter preach unto them Jesus and him crucified. As a faithful friend of the bridegroom. To whose service and honor he devoted all his interest. So you see this lame man is set out as an example to all the men of Israel. This man believed in Jesus. This man trusted in Jesus. God healed him. You believe in Jesus. You turn away from your sins. You return to God. God will forgive you and blot out all your sins. What a great miracle. You can be forgiven. So this lame man is set forth. And later next week, we're going to also see how you, you can't help but see the parallel between this man and the nation of Israel. This man being restored and the coming restoration, the times of the restoration of all things, the times of refreshing. So this man is chosen here by Luke, according to the Holy Spirit's inspiration, to be this wondrous example. To be delivered from their sin and brokenness, they must trust in Christ. For the future of Israel and the world to know the times of restoration times of refreshing they and we must trust in Christ is our world broken and lame can it be made whole and restored we must trust in Christ so if the people of Israel are to be made whole they must have faith in his name so we see that as we go through this text Peter's definitely referencing individual salvation the rescue operation that God carried out through Christ to save people from their sins. But as we go on, you will also see Peter referencing Christ's plan to put this world to rights and to deliver his kingdom through his people into all the earth. So what happens next? He calls them to repentance. Yet now, brethren, I know that you did it in ignorance, as did also your rulers. So first he softens it a bit. 
But those things which God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets that the Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. He brings in the idea of prophecy and fulfillment for the first time, which he's going to touch on many times as he goes through the remainder of this sermon. And now he gives the command. Repent, therefore, and be converted that your sins may be blotted out. So first, let's think about this. Note how Peter softens the conviction a bit. Yet, he does not excuse their sin. He doesn't point to something that's not true. He's not flattering them in order to get them to chew on his message a little bit more. He's telling them the truth. They really did not know that Jesus was their promised Messiah. They didn't know that when they approved of killing him, when they approved of his murder even if they weren't there, when they heard about it and approved of his murder. Yet, they're still guilty of great, great sin. They and their rulers, we are told in this text. Calvin puts it this way. Because it was to be doubted, lest being cast down with despair, they should refuse his doctrine, he doth a little lift them up. We must so temper our sermons that they may profit the hearers. For unless there be some hope of pardon left, the terror and fear of punishment does harden men's hearts with stubbornness. For that of David is true, that we fear the Lord when we perceive that he is unto us favorable and easy to be pacified. Thus does Peter lessen the sin of his nation because of their ignorance. For it had been impossible for them to have suffered and endured this conscience if they had denied the Son of God and delivered Him to be slain wittingly and willingly. And yet will He not flatter them when as He says that they did it through ignorance. But He does only somewhat mitigate His speech lest they should be overwhelmed and swallowed up of despair. So this is an important point about godly communication is Peter's bringing this deep correction and conviction into their life of participating in killing their Messiah. And yet, he finds this opportunity, he looks for this opportunity to encourage them and help them see that their sin is not as great as it could be. Now, at this moment, Peter also chooses to introduce the theme of God's Sovereign fulfillment of prophecy. And honestly, I don't know why he put it in right here. Okay? But he clearly wants them to begin thinking about this, and it's going to be a heavily influenced theme throughout the second portion of his sermon. He's going to return to it at multiple points. He shows the men of Israel that their sinful choices are a part of God's overarching and infinite wisdom. So maybe, maybe he is also seeking to mitigate somewhat the conviction through them becoming aware that they're a part of the generation that God foreordained to be here at this moment. To be blind and to participate ignorantly. And yet, to hear this message of forgiveness. Of the, and to, so you can see how that could bring them into encouragement for them to realize the moment in history that they're standing in. Note here, it's all the prophets. I said this already. Peter emphasizes it to them. It's like he's saying, you know, there's really no excuse for your ignorance. Okay, you were ignorant, but you shouldn't have been ignorant. 
The entire Old Testament is filled up with prophecy that the Christ would suffer. Note that's the emphasis, that the Christ would suffer. They need to understand their Messiah rightly. They had missed him. They had not understood him properly. From this point, Peter calls them to repent and be converted. So after mitigating their guilt a bit by pointing to their ignorance, after introducing the concept of Old Testament prophecy regarding the suffering of the Christ, he goes on to call them to repent and to be converted that their sins may be forgiven. You see that therefore? Repent therefore? He's pointing back to all the things that he's laid before them to consider. All the things that they did to participate in killing Jesus. So I think we can see here that before our hearts will repent, before you will repent, before I will repent, we must be drawn by the Lord into the ugly apprehension of the sinfulness of our sin. We have to come to experience it personally, the, sin, the, the sinfulness of our own sin. And attached to that, the terrifying state of wickedness deserving wrath and punishment. See, when it becomes something that we see is true of ourselves individually, this conviction and how we've harmed others and what God has delivered us from, the wrath that we deserve, this is when repentance begins to become very appealing to us. A, a, a desperate need that we would repent and turn from our sin. Next, before our heart will repent, we must be drawn into the beauty of Christ's death for us. His great love and mercy to receive repentant sinners. Jesus said, come to me. And, and what about himself did he point to to encourage us to come to him? He's gentle and lowly. We can, we can have the greatest confidence that he will receive us, that he will, he will forgive us. So in order for us to repent, we must be brought to a personal, deep hatred of our sin and how we've harmed people, how we've failed people, and the awareness of what we deserve before God. We need this to happen inside of us in our own mind, in our own heart. But at the same time, if that's it, if that's all you get, you're just going to be stuck in the filth of despair, right? But see, here's what happens. God doesn't do that. If God is working, then in the midst of the darkness of that self-revelation that God gives by His Spirit, when He's excavating, when He's excavating your soul, and going to places by His Spirit and Word that have yet to be touched in your life, and He goes there, He also brings the light of Christ's cross before your mind. He will always do that. And the, you know what that means? That means you have hope. That means you will repent and be converted and have your sins blotted out. So clearly he's talking to them about being born again and coming into the kingdom for the first time. And when we talk about numbers being added later in chapter 4, these folks were baptized, okay? Because you don't get added to the number until you get baptized. That's the objective sign of the engrafting into Christ that was done beforehand. So these people have come to Christ for the first time. But you know what? 
you and me, we go through this as Christians. We go this, through this very similar process, not being born again from above for the first time, but it feels like it sometimes. It sure feels like it sometimes because he's excavating our souls. He's revealing our sin, and we have the same choice. It's not like there's a different choice after you become a Christian, brothers and sisters. Repent, turn, and have your sins blotted out. So this word repent here means to change your mind, okay? It's to change your mind uh, for betterment and to heartily amend the abhorrence of one's past sins. So nobody has to persuade you of this. You're like, well, okay. No. When God does this, you see exactly what this sin is and that you smell it, you see what it's done to others, and it's very real, and, and you hate it. That's what God does. And then this idea of being converted, it means to turn to or to turn back to. So the idea of repentance here, it, it's also a changing of your mind, but it's kind of the initial part of that where you just, oh, I can't have any more of that. No, Lord, please. But then it continues into this conversion, into turning back to the worship of the one true God, turning back to the love and the obedience of God, turning back to wisdom and to righteousness, turning back to the ways of God and saying no to that sin, saying yes to his righteousness. And he will help us. And it is putting off the old man and putting on Christ. It is Christ living in us and through us. It's us walking in the spirit. And this beautiful idea of blotted out. Blot it out. You know, have you ever had your little eraser and you just, you rub, and no matter how long you rub, there's still like that mark there? No, 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 that's not what we're talking about here. <laughs> when God erases, it's all gone. When God obliterates, there's nothing left. When God eliminates your sin, it is gone. It is as gone as gone can be. It's as if it never was. What God does with the sins of those who repent and turn back to him is that he blots them out. This is to wash in every part. It's to wipe off. It's to wipe away. You ever seen the back of the car? Wash me. Well, imagine spick and span, no dust, no dirt, shiny, shiny clean. To obliterate, to erase, to wipe out, to blot out. That's what our God does with our sin when we come to Him. We really need, we have a hard time believing this, don't we? Because it doesn't, it, doesn't, it doesn't feel blotted out, does it? It doesn't, because see, the consequences are still there, right? We're still reaping what we've sown. But God says He blots them out. And they are. What do we say in our liturgy? That the assurance of pardon. Can somebody say it out loud for me? What does the Father from heaven say? I for, help me out. Speak it up. I want to hear you say it. I want to hear you say it. This is you need to say it to yourself because God's saying it to you over and over again. What does He say? Let me hear somebody say it out loud so we can all hear it. I forgive your iniquity and your sin. I remember no more. 
Dr. Clark, I know this. Will you please stop and go on to the next point? Do you really know it? Do you really know it? Do you really believe it? Your sins, brothers and sisters in Christ, in the Beloved, are blotted out, obliterated, and your Father in Heaven remembers them no more. So Peter ends this portion of the message with the great hope of the complete forgiveness of sins. Not, and not just the sin of killing Jesus. See, that's what was in focus, but it doesn't... He goes from there to all their sins. He says sins. All of their sins will be obliterated, erased, wiped out in every part. When they change their mind, when they repent, when they turn away from their sins and turn to God, trusting in Christ... Their sins are wiped away. You see, we have more in Christ than what was lost in Adam. And we, we, need, we need our souls to be instru- instructed by God's Spirit so we can walk around filled with joy and gladness all the time, brothers and sisters. All the time. See, Peter's going to go on to tell them more about Christ later in this message. They will understand more of whom they must turn to, whom they must trust, because it is Him they must trust. It is Him they must hear and obey. And and Matthew Henry brings that in here in this final quote of the sermon today. They must repent, must bethink themselves of what they have done amiss, must return to their right mind, must admit a second thought, and submit to the convictions of it. They must begin anew. Peter, who had himself denied Christ, repented, and he would have them to do so too. Isn't that beautiful? Peter's no, you know, condescending white tower guy. No, he was broken down just a few days before this. And he knows that his sins have been blotted out. And he wants them to have the same joy. Surely they must see this in him as he's preaching to them. Next, they must be converted. They must face about and direct both their faces and their steps the contrary way to what they had been. They must return to the Lord their God from whom they had revolted. It is not enough to repent of sin, but we must be converted from it and not return to it again. They must not only exchange the profession of Judaism for that of Christianity, but the power and dominion of a carnal, worldly, sensual mind for that of holy, heavenly, and divine principles and affections. Next, they must hear Christ, the great prophet. Him shall you hear in all things whatsoever he shall say unto you. Attend his dictates. Receive his doctrine. Submit to his government. Hear him with a divine faith, as prophets should be heard that come with a divine commission. Him shall you hear, and to him shall you subscribe with an implicit faith and obedience. Hear him in all things. Let his laws govern all your actions and his counsels determine all your submissions. Whenever he has a mouth to speak, you must have an ear to hear. Whatever Jesus says to you, though ever so displeasing to flesh and blood, bid it welcome. Okay, so praise be to God for... This message from Peter, a few questions for us and we'll be done. Do you see how service in the Spirit 
especially when you really are able to help somebody, leads to opportunities to present Christ, to preach the gospel. It's an important part of us thinking through our lives, our desire to be a part of God's kingdom work in the earth will be connected to service somehow. How has God gifted you? Where are your passions? Where are your abilities? How can you serve others? And not just necessarily in physical healing, but especially when people are sick, when people are hurting, when people have needs. How can you serve? And will you also, when you serve, see that the purpose is to glorify Christ? Right? Because we're not... We're not habitat for humanity. That's not who we are, right? We are the church, and everything we do is to point to Christ and to glorify Christ. Why are you here? Because Jesus, because he died for my sins, and he came back from the dead, and I want everyone to know that they can have their sins blotted out. So, that's first. Next. We need humility and courage. Do you see that? said it over and over again. We need, we, we'll need, look, I'm sure like on your deathbed, you're going to say, Lord, please give me more humility and more courage before I die. So may God accelerate our growth in humility and in courage. Why humility? Well, whenever you serve, whenever we serve, people are going to think well of you, right? Is that why you do it? Or when you serve, is it because you want Christ to be glorified? And, and are you going to learn the ways to reflect and to point to Christ when you serve? And we need courage because in that moment, as we're deflecting from ourselves and pointing to Christ, will we, will we look for and take the opportunities to speak of our crucified, resurrected, reigning Lord and speak of sin and speak of the need to repent and to be converted and to lay out the great joy of the forgiveness of sins. Now, next week we're going to get into even broader aspect of the message of the gospel in terms of the times of refreshing and the times of the restoration of all things. I really don't like to separate these things because they, they really, sh- I don't want you to separate them in your mind. Okay? So when we get to it next week, I'll try to put it all together. <clears throat> because brothers and sisters, in today's world, it takes courage to talk about Jesus being real, <laughs> being God, in the flesh, perfect, fulfilling all of the Bible dying dead on a cross, taking the sins of his people upon himself, being made right with God, and in his resurrection, being brought into the power of new life, and that he's reigning over the whole world. It takes courage to say these things. But you know what? It takes even more courage to look that person in the eyes and say, you know what? Your sins, your sins can be forgiven too, because you're a sinner too. And so nobody wants to hear they're a sinner. It takes a lot of courage to tell people that. Next. Do you see that sickness and healing are present in this earth in order to give us opportunities to point to Christ? Okay? Because in the beginning, there was no sickness. There was no death. 
And so anytime somebody's sick, in any way, suffering in any way, it's because of the fall. It's because sin has come into the world. Now, there's complexities. There's layers to this. We don't want to be silly and oversimplify things. But it is true on a grand level, on a grand philosophical level, the reason that you have a stuffy nose is because they ate the fruit. The reason that you get indigestion is because they ate the fruit. The reason that loved ones die from ovarian cancer is because they ate the fruit. Okay? So I hope you will just remember this because, I mean, sickness, it's everywhere. And we just take it for granted like the clouds. We see the clouds and we think, oh, that's how it is. No, God gives rain. God gives rain or he doesn't give rain. Well, you know what? Sickness is here in this world to teach us. Emotional, physical, and to remind us of the fall and to remind us of the one who has overcome the fall. And we may have death. We will have death. We may have suffering. We will have suffering. But Jesus Christ gets the final word. And we get to tell people about this in the midst of suffering and sorrow. So, this man's laying there. He's broken down. And it all ends up as an opportunity to glorify Christ. Next. I want us to see that Peter knew his audience. Okay? Now, it's kind of obvious. um, But he could charge them with, with sin. He knew what they had done. But he could also soften it in righteousness as well by saying you were ignorant. And so this, this, the idea here is that when, when we're in relationships with people and we know people well, we'll have better opportunities to preach uh, the truth of God. That never changes, but in a way that really fits where this person is and who they are in their sin in their loss, in their grief, in their need for Christ. Whether they're a Christian who needs encouragement or correction or whether it's an unbeliever who needs to be brought to the truth of their own sin and their need for forgiveness in Christ. Are you tempted to deny Christ? You know, Peter points to how they denied Christ and it's really easy for us to just look at them. But I think sometimes we need to put ourselves at different places in the story. Are you tempted to deny Christ? And if so, when, where? What are the situations in your life where you're tempted to, you know, prefer whatever? instead of Jesus. They wanted the murderer, right? That's what they wanted instead of Jesus. They avoided persecution and pain through going along. Where are you tempted to do this? Next, are you tempted to put leaders up on a pedestal looking to the leader instead of looking to God? Is that something that you're tempted to do? No. You know, as we get to know each other honestly and you... I'm your pastor and you see my sin and my failures. I hope that you will, if this, any part of this is in you, that my own weaknesses and failures quickly <laughs> make you stop doing that. Okay? And I think uh, related to this is do you see the importance of knowing your leaders? Because the guy on the podcast has never offended you. The guy on the podcast has probably never said something stupid to you. The guy on the podcast has probably never done something that leads you to wonder about him. Okay, this is why you need to know your leaders because you should never put them on pedestals because they're just sinners. We're all just sinners begging bread from the same heavenly store. Okay, so watch out for that. Next, 
Faith in Christ links you to Him, His presence, and His power. Do, do you understand that when you trust in Christ, you are united with Him. And that means His presence. That means His power. And that means all that accompanies Him and His presence and His power. His glory, His beauty, His love, His tenderness, His lowliness, His desire for God's glory. And so, <clears throat> there are areas in your life that are probably like this man's ankles were to him. Right? <clears throat> I brought it up last week, I'll bring it up again. <clears throat> because it's in the text again. <clears throat> what parts of your life have you given up on? You know, he's laying there at the beautiful gate. His ankles and feet are messed up since birth. There's no hope of him walking. And he walks. And so, and we're told today it was through faith in Christ. And so, brothers and sisters, if you're here today and you have faith in Christ, you trust in Christ, the real Christ, the risen Christ who died for your sins, then there's no broken spot in your life that can't be made whole. There's no broken spot in your life that's beyond hope. Go to the Lord, wherever you might feel stuck, whatever weakness or whatever besetting sin it may be. Because this man was totally restored in his ankles and his feet immediately. And I'm going to bring out the idea of the total restoration of this man's feet. And even the text said that he's been made whole. Let me go back and give you the exact language of the description of what happens to this man. <clears throat> Perfect soundness. Perfect soundness. So you can see it extends even beyond his feet. And I hope that you'll remember this, especially next week, because this man serves as an example of what Jesus is doing for the Jews of that time and for his people throughout all times. This man was totally restored in his ankles and feet. <clears throat> Are you walking in repentance and faith every day? One way of asking this is, when's the last time you sinned? Right? When's the last time you... Well, you, well I didn't ask you when's the last time the person sitting next to you sinned. <laughs> That's unfortunately a lot of times easier to answer. When's the last time that you sinned? Because the life of repentance and faith is one that's constantly confessing sin. Constantly by God's grace being brought to some deeper understanding of our own sin pattern that's still in place, <clears throat> our own deceptions, our own weaknesses, and we repent and we trust in Christ. So the same thing we did at the beginning, repent and believe, is what we do over and over and over again in our lives as Christians. <clears throat> when's the last time you sinned? When's the last time you repented before God? When's the last time you repented to another person? And if, it's, if you can't remember a while, then that's probably a clue that you've gotten away from the Christian life. You've gotten away from sanctification. You've gotten away from the transformation that we prayed for at the beginning of the sermon, which we always pray for. That transformation is being made like Christ and that process takes place through repentance and faith as he shows our, our sin to us. <clears throat> Brothers and sisters, our sins have been obliterated totally by God. And I hope that we will go forth in the remainder of today's worship just filled up with gladness and gratitude.
Let us pray. Almighty and gracious Heavenly Father, we are your people. We confess our sins to you once again, O God, and rejoice once again in in your forgiveness to us. Lord, we have uh, sinned, uh, we repent, we turn to you, and we trust that you blot out all of our sins. And we desire, O God, to go forth in this worship today as your forgiven people, filled up with gladness and worship to you. In Jesus' name.